Good morning, everybody. So uh, we're, in, we're right in the middle of Advent, which is wonderful. And Advent, of course, is um, the time where we remember how the Israelites looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. And um, for us, Advent is, looking for, is remembering the coming of the Messiah, but also looking forward to the second coming of Christ. And um, 1 Thessalonians talks about this in chapter 4, verse, verse 15. Paul writes, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And that word coming in Greek is the Greek word parousia. Um, and, it's, and it has with it, embedded in it, the idea of um, an emperor coming to visit a city. And so, of course, Rome was an empire, and the emperor would occasionally go around and visit various cities. And when a city knew that the emperor was coming, they would work very hard to get everything ready because he's coming to visit their city. And when he was, when he was a little ways off, um, someone would see him coming, and all the dignitaries of the city in their best clothes would go out to meet the emperor, and then they would bring him back into the city. Um, and so, so this is the, the idea of us looking forward to the return of Christ, that we are... Um, in the city that Jesus is coming back to, and we are meant to be preparing for that, um, getting ready for his coming, always looking out for it, and that when we see him, we will go out to meet him and then bring him back, uh, come back with him kind of in his train, um, uh, because, of course, he is the royal king coming to not just visit our city, but to make it his home. And uh, one of the things I really love about Advent is I think that it is a time when we should um, really let our theological imaginations loose. Um, and we should let the Bible, the, Paul says that when Jesus comes, he will do more than we can hope or imagine. And um, I, think, I think Paul is saying that we should try to imagine a lot. Um, and uh, I think in our culture, we spend a lot of time imagining what going to heaven is like, dying and going to heaven, but that's not the thing the Bible wants us to imagine. Um, imagining what it's like when we die and go to heaven is like planning a wonderful trip to Europe and daydreaming about your layover in Minnesota. Like, it's, it's just not the thing. That's not the thing on the trip that you care about. Um, we are supposed to imagine what the coming of the Lord will be like. And I think Advent is the perfect time to set our imaginations on fire. And I want to read an Advent poem uh, that is theologically rich and written by someone here in our own congregation, Eden Hitchcock. So it is called Heaven on Earth. Trees bear fruit like never before. Golden plums, sugar apples, shining oranges hang like bliss in the warm sun. Under the lovely blue sky, the lion cuddles the lamb. The cheetah and the antelope graze together. I told you the grass tastes good, mentions the latter. People pat the animals' heads as they stride by, young and old, on a golden road. All worries gone from their minds and replaced with praises for their Lord. He sits in a golden throne, overseeing his beautiful world. His plan has finally been completed. His son walks among his people. He has finally returned, saving them for the last time. Awesome. That was beautiful. Okay, we're going to transition here. I'll read the scripture for this morning's message. It comes from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. John the Baptist prepares the way. <clears throat> In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, 
Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eturia, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized, baptized by him, you brood of vipers, we warned, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share him, is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors came also to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers who asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the shaft will be burned with unquenchable fire. Thanks, John. Have you ever prepared your house for a visit from someone really special? I, I'm not going to name any names. But I know there's some of you that you won't have anybody over unless your house is spotless. So it probably wouldn't matter for you, right? You would do the same exact thing no matter who it was. But for the rest of you, have you ever gotten your house ready for, for a visit from someone you really admired? Like maybe it was your favorite. I mean, what, what would happen like if, if you, got an invi- or you gave an invite to somebody who was like a, a, a famous celebrity, a famous musician, or a world-renowned scholar, or maybe your favorite pro athlete, or... Or maybe a, a movie star celebrity that you've just always wanted to meet. Like, how would you prepare for them to come to your house? What would you do to get ready? I'm thinking most of us would be crazy busy. We'd be making all the preparations, getting everything perfect, fixing everything around our house. You know, the kinds of things that we only fix before we sell our house. Right? We sold our house a couple years ago, and Jenny and I said, why didn't we do this a long time ago? You know, we just little things that you just don't do. You'd be doing all those things. You'd be cleaning it spotless, making sure the, whole, the place was perfect. And you might even spruce it up a bit. You know, add some things, paint and flooring or even some new furnishings. You'd want that person's stay to be as pleasant as possible. 
And my guess is you'd go about your work with a lot of joy, too. This wouldn't be drudgery. You'd be excited, right, with anticipation about meeting this person that you always wanted to meet. But let me ask you this. What if that person coming to visit was Jesus? What if he was coming to your house for a visit? How would you be getting ready for him to arrive? I know that question's a little tricky, right? Because if you know Jesus and you know your Bible, you know, he probably wouldn't be caring about your new couch or, or what's going, what's, you know, what kind of decorations you have in your living room. He, he, didn't, he wouldn't be into all that stuff, but he would be really laser-focused on the condition of your heart. So your preparations would probably have to be different, but what would you be doing to prepare for him? Today's sermon is all about that. It's all about preparing for Jesus to come through a process called repentance. And as I mentioned earlier, week two in Advent highlights John the Baptist, Jesus' very interesting cousin uh, who wore camel hair, ate bugs and honey in the desert, and preached all about repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And my son Dawson, he loves this story in the Jesus Storybook Bible. We always have a good chuckle and, and laugh at how gross John's diet was. I mean, grasshoppers and honey. Imagine that's all you're eating again today. It's just more bugs. Uh, it's, it's just hard to imagine that. But John, being unusual, had an unusual task. And I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it. It says, God had a special job for him. John was going to get everyone ready for Jesus. Stop running away from God and run to him instead, John said. You need to be rescued. I have good news. The rescuer is coming. Make your hearts ready for him. Yes, get ready because your king is coming back for you. Just like Christina said. So John's task was to get people ready for the return of Jesus by calling them to repent of their sins. And now you probably have heard that word a lot, especially if you've been around church or Christian circles. You've heard the word repentance, but I think a lot of times if full meaning escapes us, we maybe take it for granted that we know what it means. The Greek word here in our text is metanoia, which means a change of mind leading to a change of behavior. So it's really literally to change your mind about something, which then in turn leads to a change of behavior. It can also mean to turn around, as we sang about today. And when we do this practice regularly, it prepares our hearts to meet Jesus. So repentance, according to John, prepares the way for Jesus. And that's what verses 4 through 6 of our text today are telling us in sort of poetic language. These verses are a quote from the prophet Isaiah about John's ministry. It says this, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways be made smooth. We sang about this today as well, but what's it talking about? What's it talking about? Every valley shall be filled, every, every hill made low, the, the, the crooked made straight. Well, in that time, very much going along with Christina's TMT, uh, when a king, when the word would get out to a city that a king was coming to the city, they would begin, like she said, making preparations for that king to come. And one of the big things they would start preparing were, were the roads, because roads would, would be in shambles at some times during, during that day and age. And so they would start leveling out the valleys and the high places and places where the road was crooked. They would straighten it out, just make everything smooth. They wanted that king's journey to their city to be as smooth as possible. And, of course, we've had the luxury of beautiful roads in our country um, that have long been paved through some of the most difficult places to traverse. And maybe you've thought about this if you've traveled through the Black Hills or the mountains of Colorado or Montana. Maybe you've thought as you look at sheer cliffs on both sides of the road, like, how did this road get here? 
I mean, what an astonishing amount of work to get a road into some of these places. You just think about how much work that took. And that's really what Isaiah is saying to us here. He's using kind of some hyperbole to say, look, mountains will be brought low. Like, there's no amount of work that people won't go through to get ready for the arrival of King Jesus. No effort will be too much to ask in getting ready for his return. They'll tear down mountains to make a path for him. I think that's a really cool way to think of Advent, isn't it? Like, nothing's going to stop us from getting ready for King Jesus. We're making these joyful preparations in our hearts as we eagerly anticipate the arrival of our king. And we don't want him to be coming on roads like Sioux Falls is in the spring, right? Just full of potholes everywhere. I mean, you're driving and you're like, I don't know, maybe I'll drive on the sidewalk because my car's not going to make it anymore. And we don't want Jesus coming on those kind of roads, right? We want him coming on nice, smooth, well-prepared roads like we actually were expecting him. Like, spare no expense, spare no effort. Jesus is coming. We want to be ready for him. That's what Isaiah's prophecy about John is saying here in our passage. But how do we do this? How do we do this work? Well, John says we do this by repentance. Repentance is what straightens out the things that are crooked in our hearts. It's what makes smooth, level paths ready for Jesus to come. It welcomes him. And so in this passage, John shows us three things about repentance that I want us to look at for a few moments together. And then we're actually just going to practice it. But first of all, he shows us our need for repentance the fruit of repentance, and the person that repentance points us to. So the need, the fruit, and the the person. So here we go. First of all, our need for repentance. Look at verse 7. John, he's he's not a chicken, right? Uh, He starts out his message to the Jewish people pretty harsh here. He calls them a brood of vipers. Like you're a family of snakes. Can you imagine that, that way starting out a sermon? Pretty, pretty harsh on people here, but basically says that, look, the Jews had relied on being God's chosen people, descendants of Abraham, for their righteousness, and he just confronts them on it. He says they're more descendants of the devil than descendants of Abraham, and that they also need to repent. And obviously, John, in his truth-telling, it got him in trouble, eventually got him beheaded because he, he called out Herod himself— but you got to admire him for his willingness to tell the Jews that they were just as much in need of repentance as everyone else. See, the Jews were not used to being called to, being, to having to repent and to being baptized. That was something for Gentile proselytes or Gentile converts. If they wanted to convert to the faith of Judaism, they needed to repent of their sins and be baptized. So they probably had seen that at some point, but they themselves, no, they didn't get baptized. They didn't need to repent of their sins. They were on the in crowd already. And, John, and um, John confronts them on this. He basically says, you're not as hot as you think you are. You know, God can make for himself descendants from Abraham out of these stones. So don't rely on that. You need to be baptized as well. You need to have your sins forgiven as well. You need to repent. And I'm wondering today what John's message would be to us. I'm pretty confident he would offend us. He was good at that. But what would, be, what would be the main thrust of his message, especially to those of us who have been Christians for a long time? You know, what are those false things that we rely on for our righteousness before God that he would confront? You know, I think a lot of times, um, at least in, 
in sort of cultural Christianity in America, we can rely on our family pedigree too. Like my grandparents were Christians, my parents were Christians. We've always belonged to this church. We've always given money to these churches or these things or these organizations. And you can just kind of start to feel like you're on the in crowd. Like we're on Jesus' team and it's those other people that are really sinful and need to repent. Start looking down our noses at the other people, right? Nothing like being called a brood of vipers to wake you up. John didn't pull any punches, and I hope that we at Life Church don't pull any punches either. The truth of the matter is, all of us need to repent. And not just once, but regularly. Like this ought to be a, a regular habit in our lives that we're allowing the Holy Spirit to search us for sin, pointing those things out, repenting, changing our minds, and turning from those things to Jesus. We don't want this discipline to be something we do once a year, but consistently throughout the year. And that's one of the things the staff here at Life Church actually talks about on a regular basis. We look at, hey, in our services, are we providing adequate time for the Spirit to speak to people and to convict them of sin? Are we, are we looking for opportunities for people to actually examine themselves and repent of that sin? Are we giving people space for that? We're going to give space for that today. But... This is an important thing here at Life Church. It's not sort of um, a side thing. This is a central thing, a central piece of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So that's point number one. We all need this discipline of repentance our entire lives. We never, ever graduate from it. And that leads us to point number two. There's fruit that John's after in repentance, clearly. Verse 8, John says, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Verse 9, he says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, which is nearly word for word with what Jesus taught. He said a tree would be known by its fruit. A good tree bears good fruit. In other words, Jesus says, if you go up to an apple tree, you don't have to drill a hole into it to figure out if it's good or not. You just look at its fruit. Which is the same, the same thing applies to us, Right? If we have received the good news about Jesus, we've been filled with the Holy Spirit, we're actively listening for his voice in our lives, trying to be obedient to him, that's a life that's going to produce consistent fruit, right? It's just going to happen. A good tree bears good fruit. It's evidence that there's been repentance and change in our hearts. Now, we, we know that we're not saved by our fruit, right? The fruit is just evidence that the change has happened. Martin Luther said, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's always accompanied by good fruit. So let me ask you this morning, brothers and sisters, is there any fruit in your life? Is there any fruit in your life? Now, obviously trees go through seasons, right, where they produce more fruit than other times. Um, and I would encourage you to assess yourself graciously. Don't look at just one week of your life, but take a couple of years and just say, over the last couple of years, have I been shown to be fruitful? Am I growing and producing fruit or not? Right? Because if you're not producing fruit, that's a really, really serious spiritual condition, says John. You really need to look at that. There's going to be some repentance needed so that you can start bearing fruit. I love the question that the crowds ask of John in response to this convicting message. In verse 10, they say, what shall we do? Which is a great question. It's a repentance question. Like, okay, we get it. We're wrong. What do we do? We want to obey Jesus. We want to produce fruit. What, what, do, what, do, what do we need to do, John? 
That's what should be at the heart of every believer. Hey, look, I just want to do what pleases the Lord. If the Lord's pleased with it, then I'm good with that. Whatever it takes. And that's what the Spirit is wanting to do in us all the time. And that's what John says that we have as he's pointing forward. He says, like, there's going to come a time where we don't baptize. You're not going to be baptized with water. You're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, which is us now, right? You're not baptized just in a baptism of repentance, but you're baptized by the Holy Spirit. And now the Holy Spirit is your ongoing baptism of repentance. The Spirit's the one helping you to see your sin and change your mind. He's the one helping you to turn from it. He's the one helping to make you a fruitful disciple of Jesus. And the Spirit's going to be very specific with you in helping you to produce fruit. Look at how John was specific with these people as well. You know, they ask, what should we do? And he says, one group says, well, you need to share your clothes and your food. To a group of tax collectors, he says, stop gouging people. To a group of soldiers, he says, don't use your power for personal gain. Like, he gives them real-life stuff. He talks to real people and real vocations. And I'm wondering, what is he saying to you this morning? How is he wanting you to bear fruit? What do you need to repent of so that you can start to bear fruit? Which brings us to our final point. The person repentance points us to. Let's remember that to repent is to change your mind, which leads to a change of actions, but it's also a turning around. So you're headed down this path, this way, towards destruction, on the path of sin. The Holy Spirit comes and says, no, not that way, this way. And then you turn around. That's what repentance is. You go the other direction. But where are you turning towards is a big deal. Where are you turning towards? Because it's not just you're turning towards a better life choice or becoming a better you or a more moral version of yourself. If you do that, if you just turn from your sin and you just try harder to be better, that's just going to produce self-righteousness and pride in you. It's going to actually end up taking you backwards. What you really need to be doing is turning towards the person that repentance is supposed to direct you to. And John introduces us to this person in our text. After hearing these strong words and having their hearts convicted, the people begin to wonder to themselves about John. They say, like, is this guy the Christ? Verse 15. You know, John picks up on that and he sets them straight. Because remember, John's baptism of repentance wasn't the final thing. He says it himself. John was only preparing the way for, as he puts it, he who is mightier than I. The one whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. That's an incredible statement about John, about John the Baptist, that he says, I'm not worthy to untie this guy's sandal, the one that repentance points to. We've learned this when we talked about foot washing in the John series. But feet back then, disgusting. They were totally gross, right? Because they were walking on the same roads, and they didn't drive on those roads with cars. They drove on them with donkeys and camels and other animals that would poop on the roads. So at the end of the day, your sandals and your feet would be covered with dirt and poop. And it was the servant's job to remove your sandals and to wash your feet. That's why it's so big that Jesus actually does that and demonstrates that to his disciples. But John's saying here, he's like, look, I'm not even worthy enough to be this guy's servant. I'm not even worthy enough to remove his poop-covered sandal and wash his glorious feet. That's what John's saying there. It's because John knew who Jesus was. John was the first one to call it out publicly. When Jesus came to be baptized by John to the river, John almost stops. His eyes get big, and he's he's almost speechless, and he just says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. He, He just can't believe it. 
See, friends, John the Baptist's ministry was this bridge between the Old Testament and the New. In the Old Testament, the people needed repentance and forgiveness, so they, in, in repenting, they would bring an animal to the priest, a lamb, and their sin would be placed on that lamb. The lamb's blood would be spilt, it would be killed and offered as a burnt offering, and their sins would be removed. But John's saying, no, no, no. Now there's a new ministry coming. There's a time when people's sin won't be placed on an animal, but on a human the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. And he's the one we run to when we repent. He's the only one who can wash us and make us clean. John knew that Jesus was God's best, purest, spotless Lamb, the only person who ever lived without sin. I mean, get that. Jesus was the only person who never had to repent of anything. Never. Not even once. And this spotless lamb would be sacrificed for your sins and mine. His blood spilt. He would die and then rise again, conquering our sin once and for all. Now when we repent and we're baptized, we're not just baptized in a, in a sort of a washing of our sin, in a washing. The water doesn't just represent the washing of our sin, but it represents our, our unity with Christ. So as we, the water represents death, as we are baptized, we go down under the water and we're united with Christ in his death and his burial. As we're raised up out of the water, we are, it signifies we're being united with him in his resurrection to live a new life by the power of the Spirit. The one who empowers us to live a new life, the one who helps us to bear fruit. This is the person that repentance points us to. It's always, always, always to Jesus. You turn from your sin and never anywhere else, always to Jesus. I don't know where this message finds you today, friends, on this second Sunday of Advent. You know, maybe you're here and a friend brought you today and you're not a believer. And you're saying, boy, this is some confusing stuff, Pastor Dave. And I get it, but maybe the Lord's just illuminating to you this one thing that you recognize you, along with the rest of humanity, are deeply broken and sinful and in need of forgiveness. And if he's opening your eyes to that today, he's also opening your eyes to how you can be forgiven, which is by faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And I would just encourage you to run to him today. There's going to be people up here to pray for you. Uh, but for the rest of us here today who are believers, what I find is that I often don't need to hear more about repentance. I just need to practice it. And so that's what we're going to do right now. We are going to practice a, a time of repentance. So I'm going to call the worship team back up here. Um, I'm going to read a, a short section um, from Adele Calhoun's book, which is going to kind of prepare our hearts, and then a short scripture of examination. But we're going to let the Lord really convict us of sin, give him space to do that, and repent. And maybe it doesn't all happen right here in this next five minutes, but maybe this next five minutes is just kind of a primer for your heart throughout this Advent season that, Lord, show me where I've been off, show me where I've been wrong, and lead me on the right path. Let me read to you from Adele Calhoun's book on repentance. This is what she says. I think this is so beautiful because this just, this gets us at the right heart mindset of it, you know, and, and not getting lost in shame and guilt and all those other things. But she says this, true repentance means we open the bad in our lives to God. We invite him to come right in and look at our sin with us. We don't hide behind being good, moral people or neurotic self-recriminations. We don't pretend to be other than we are. We don't disguise the truth by carting out all the disciplines we practice. We tell it like it is, without rationalization, denial, or blame, to the only person in the universe who will unconditionally love us when we are bad. 
We hand over the pretense, image management, manipulation, control, and self-obsession. In the presence of the Holy One, we give up on appearing good and fixing our sin. We lay down our ability to change by the power of the self. We turn to Jesus and seek forgiveness. That's exactly what we want to do right now. Stop pretending, friends. There's no point. He already knows, and he loves you infinitely. And he's provided this safe space with such unconditional love that you can go there with him as he, as he takes you to those places. You can repent of it because his love is so unconditional. He already loves you in your sin and invites you to turn from it to Jesus today. I'm going to read this passage from Psalm 139 as we start. They're just going to play some music behind us in the background. And then Jack's going to come up and read a couple of psalms and pray over us as we close in a few minutes here. But let's just start, if you would, bow your heads. And I would just encourage you, take this time, however, whatever posture the Lord leads you to, if you need to get down on your knees, do that. Do whatever you need to do. Let the Spirit lead you in this time. This is the time for you to meet with Him. All right? Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Again, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting.